0: You are listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankford.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20. Um, I'm going to take a moment and do what I didn't do before the service, which was to put this on Do Not Disturb. So there you go. Um, And as you're turning there, if you've been here with us for a few weeks, you know what's coming, right? Say it with me. We want to know Jesus better. We want to love Jesus more. And we want to serve Jesus greater. It's why we're dealing with this really sometimes very difficult book. And today we're going to be talking about the anchor of hope. And this concludes a section. Now, uh, be, be reminded that when these individuals wrote letters and wrote pieces uh, uh, of what we have as a Bible today, it didn't come with verse, and it didn't come with chapter division, didn't come with sections with neat little subheadings. It it was intended to be read fully as a letter and fully understood as a letter, but for ease of reading and studying in the in the modern world we've we've kind of broken things out and so this is the section that really began back in chapter 5 verse 11 with that call to spiritual maturity that call to progress from milk to solid food to realize that uh, they, they should have been teachers by now and not just those kind of hanging out in the, in the body and of the, a and the community of faith. And, and it was a, a, a warning that came with that. We looked at whether it was real people or hypothetical. It was a real warning that if you choose to, th- to go against Jesus, again, remember the context of the letter. If you choose to go against what you've learned in the gospel of Christ and go back to where it was safe and back to where it was comfortable. that there's a real danger in doing that. And so he's going to wrap this section up today with this understanding of what it means to have this anchor of hope. And I thought about it this week and I thought, what are some things that really get in the way of our um, spiritual maturity? And we could even say this about emotional maturity. We could even say this uh, in some ways and cases about other things that we are to mature in life. What are some things that get in our way? You know, one of the things that gets in our way is a, 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 a reluctance in our lives to go deep. Right, there's a reluctance sometimes in our lives in different areas to really get deeper, or to really get uh, beyond just surface level of things. And I, I, I couldn't tell you how many times in twenty plus years I've had people say, "Well, your pastor, I really want to go deeper. I want to go deeper." I'm like, "Okay, great. You know, we've got Bible studies, and we've got small groups, and we got prayer time once a week, and we... got Well, yeah, but I, life's just really, really busy. But I really want to go deep. Do you now? Do you? And sometimes that issue is because deep is all about perspective, isn't it? In the pool in our backyard, that four feet, four inches of water is deep to my little diminutive Kiki. It's not deep to me. And so some of it requires us to really examine where we are. It requires us to have some introspection, to to see where our lives are and to to move forward into the next level of maturity. Uh, Sometimes self-centeredness gets in the way. When life becomes all about me, my personal preferences, my thoughts, my ideals, my everything else, me, 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 maturity does not come when that's... The stage of life we're in. I mean, think about it. When a toddler is all me, 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 they're not maturing. And so it's the same way for us. But really one of the biggest things I think that stands in the way of our spiritual maturity is a loss of hope, a loss of hope I think that's what the the community here that the author is writing to, I think that's what they were experiencing because of the persecution, because of the being ostracized in their community, because of all the things that were going on, they were beginning to lose a little hope in Jesus, lose a little hope in the gospel. And maybe they had even been fed what we have sometimes been fed in our day, which was this, if you just come to Jesus, everything will be perfect and good and right from here on out you just come to Jesus, then it's always a sunshine bluebird day. And maybe they had been fed that a little bit. And they'd begun to lose their hope. Because when you lose hope, the the next sort of logical thing for us to say is, well, what's the point? When a student loses hope that they're not going to get that A and they still have a test to take, doesn't matter what I get on it, what's the point? Or when you're in a job or a career and you realize, I'm, I'm never going to get that promotion that I've been aspiring to no matter what I do. The, the natural human tendency is just to kind of say, what's the point? When we lose hope, we stop maturing. And so I think that the author here is intended to show his community and intended to show us that we continue to mature because we have such a great hope in Jesus. That he anchors us, nothing else. He anchors us in such a way that we continue on in maturity. Let's read together Hebrews 6, beginning verse 13 through verse 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you've got your your Bibles open there and you read along with me, look back at verses 11 and 12 because they lead us into this passage. In that little section, he wrapped up this way. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so he says to them, you need to be imitators of those who have come before you. You need to be imitators of those who with faith and patience, two things that we do not always have a lot of, do we? We don't always have a lot of faith and patience. We live in a microwavable world. There are kids in this place today who will never know the joy of standing at the the stove watching the bag of Jiffy Pop take seven and a half minutes to swell up so they can have popcorn. Because everything's instant. Everything's right now. And God doesn't work on... Right now? Well, he can, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he brings miracles. Sometimes he brings healings. Sometimes he grabs people by their spiritual throat and says, It's time. But the majority of the time, God works through long suffering places in our lives. He works through those places to develop faith and patience in us. And he does so because what he has done is he's given us his promise and his word that no matter how long it takes us to get through that, he has secured that ending for us. The writer points back to Abraham here. He realizes and teaches us today that our hope is connected to God's faithful word. He says when God made a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater and himself to swear to so he swore by himself there's three key moments in genesis for abraham more than three but really three that are crucial to this discussion in genesis 12 verses 2 and 3 it's the first time god says to abraham i'm going to make you a great nation We'll make you a great nation and we'll multiply you. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. He repeats that same kind of promise in Genesis chapter 17 in verses 6 and 8. But it's not until we get to Genesis 22 and God has commanded Abraham to offer his only son as a sacrifice, foreshadowing, of course, what God he himself would do, save the difference in that he didn't ask Abraham to go through with it. But we get to Genesis 22, and once Abraham has has proven his his obedience to God in that, and God provides a different offering, listen to what it says in Genesis 22, verse 15 and following. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as of the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in, in, in your offspring all the nations of the earth be blessed. See, he made two promises, but there came a third crucial point where he realized that Abraham was going to follow him, and he followed up his promises by an oath. He followed up his promises by saying, there's no one higher than me to swear to. So I swear by myself, I swear on my own name, God says, that what I've promised you is going to happen. We, we have that interaction as humans, don't we? Uh, sometimes, and, and I think it's changed maybe in some courts of law, but forever you, you gave up to give testimony or give witness. And you had some sort of swearing in, so help me God. You're talking to another human being and talking about things and they're saying this or they're saying they're going to do this for you or whatever. And really, yeah, I swear, right? Sometimes they swear by things they shouldn't swear by. But nonetheless, they give you an oath, they swear. And we tend to trust that in human interaction, don't we? Knowing all the well that sometimes people give you a promise and an oath and they have no intention of keeping it. Well, if we would trust that in human interaction, why wouldn't we trust God's promise and his oath even greater? For the realization is it is impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for him to go back on his word. It's impossible for him to make a promise, swear by his own name, and then reverse that course of passage. And this is the author saying this to him. Look again in verses 13 and following. God made this promise to Abraham. He swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. When we get over into chapter 11 and we get into that famous chapter 11, the kind of the the hall of fame of faith people, it's going to tell us that Abraham, trusting God, set out from his homeland to follow God, not knowing where he was going. Imagine God somehow gets your attention today. I don't know how he'd do it. Maybe right up in the sky. Maybe you go home and there's an angel on your doorstep. Or maybe there's an anonymous letter. But somehow God gets your attention and says, Hey, guess what? I need you to pack everything up. And I need you to start driving north. And I'll tell you when you get there what you're supposed to do. I got any takers on that one? Abraham, through faith, and patience and trust, and knowing that it was impossible for God to lie, that the things God had said to him would come true. He trusted in him. And so he's seen as something for them to imitate. And he goes on to talk about the fact, that, again, verse 17, that God shows more unconvincingly the heirs of, of his promise, the unchangeable character. It's impossible for God to lie, verse 18 says. And it says, because of all this, end of verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Does he mean that they actually had fled wherever they lived because of the persecution? Possibly. That word is used in Acts 14 to speak of Paul and Barnabas fleeing one place and going to the other because they were uh, the people of the town they were in were getting ready to try to stone them. It's possible they physically fled, but more than likely, because all of this has this spiritual connotation to it, more than likely he's speaking of the fact they have fled for refuge to the only place that one can flee for refuge that is constant, that is forever, that is powerful, that is enduring, that is all-encompassing, and that refuge is Jesus. There is no other refuge on this earth. There is no other tower you may run into. There is no political system, economic system. There is no nothing on this earth that one can run to outside of Jesus and find full security. And we know he promises us that because it's impossible for him to lie. Our hope is connected to his word. Our hope is connected to Jesus. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. We have this. We have all of this, he says, all of this Abraham example, all of this truth about who God is and what he says and how it's unchangeable. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in other words what the author says is this word to Abraham this promise this oath this God story that was playing out that long ago has now found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ that is the sure and steadfast anchor that is the sure and steadfast hope only Jesus gives us this opportunity and we have this imagery of this anchor right We've had all this kind of nautical imagery all the way through Hebrews. Chapter 2 talked about drifting, right? And we talked about what it means to drift out in the waters. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6 and 14 talked about holding fast. And uh, that's a phrase that oftentimes was described as tying a boat uh, up to, to a pier or a dock. Last week, 611 talked about we had this full assurance, and I shared it with you that it was a phrase that they would often refer to as a ship having a full sail, meaning it was full power. And now he comes in with this other piece of nautical imagery and talks about an anchor. And what does an anchor do? An anchor keeps you from drifting, an anchor keeps you. Directed where you need to be an anchor provides you safety and security when the waves are crashing and the wind is blowing and the, st- the skies are darkening the anchor keeps you there and he says we have this as an anchor of the soul. What is it? It's God's promises. It's God's unchanging word. It's God's unchanging character. And it's all that fulfilled in the person of Jesus because he, that hope, has entered into the inner place behind the curtain. The most obvious reference, of course, would have been to the man-made temple, that place within the temple called the Holy of Holies, which is where the high priest went in once a year to make atonement for the people of Israel. But understand, Jesus is no earthly high priest. When we get later in the Hebrews, what we're going to learn is that he doesn't do that once a year. He has done that once for all, for all who would believe. He has made the sacrifice. He has made the atonement. He has paid the ransom once for all, for all who would believe. We also see a difference in that Jesus entered into that with confidence. Yes, he had that moment in the garden in his humanness, Where he said, God, if there's any other way, but then he quickly turned back to the obedience of Abraham and said, but if not, I'll go. If not, I'll go. He went with confidence, knowing that God's word would not fail, that his Father's word would not fail. And he knew that even facing the the horrific nature of the cross, he could go into it with confidence. When the high priest went into the earthly temple, uh, when you read about how their vestments, how their clothing was made, they often had bells attached to them. Why? Because as long as you heard the bells, you knew they hadn't been stricken down. When you stop hearing the bells ringing, somebody's in trouble. Some high priests would go in and they'd have them tie a rope around their legs so that if the, if the bell stopped ringing, they could pull their dead body out because they didn't want to go in the place where the high priest just got knocked over. They they went in, but they didn't go in with confidence. Jesus went into this inner place with confidence, and he fulfilled the promises of God. But understand this, there's also teaching that talks about this inner place behind the curtain or or the veil sometimes, as some of your translations may say, was also taught of that area that separated the earth from the heavens and primarily separated the earth from God's forever dwelling place in the heavens. And that's really what the author is getting to here. It's not that Jesus has entered the temple holy of holies. He has entered the very presence of God. It's not that he entered into a building made by man, but he has entered into the very place where the creator of the universe, the one who thought all this up, designed all this up, and worked it through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, he has entered his very place, the holiest of holies. And he is there and he is anchored In Hebrews 1, it said that he sat down at the right hand of God. And we talked about it. That doesn't mean Jesus is sitting, twiddling his thumbs, just waiting for the end of things to happen. It was a phrase that meant that he had completed his task, completed his mission. No more work to do. That for this poor, pitiful soul, I'm 52. Let's say I make it to 78, which I think right now is about the average age for men. Everything that I do wrong from 52 to 78, he's still already paid the price for. He has secured it. He's gone into the Holy of Holies. He is there advocating for me. He is indwelling within me by the Spirit. He is the one who is interceding on my, my behalf. He's the one preparing a place for me that I don't deserve. And he's done that. He is doing that. Because he is anchored in the most holy place, in the presence of God his Father. But notice also what it says, how it describes it in verse 20. It says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner on our behalf. What does that mean? It it was a term that often meant um, someone maybe in a military sense, uh, a single person or a small group of people that might go ahead and kind of scat out the area. But again, it was also used as a nautical term. And it described a smaller boat that would really essentially just take the anchor attached by rope to a larger boat that couldn't make it in the shallows. And that smaller boat would go in and navigate those waters and drop that anchor so that larger boat would be secure. Not only that, the forerunner means, in Jesus' case, that he's gone as a forerunner to make a way for us to be in that holy of holies place. Nobody's got to tie a a rope around their leg. Nobody's got to have bells on their clothes. We, by virtue of our prayer, by virtue of the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, can go right into the midst of the presence of God. Because Jesus has done that for us. He has gone on before us as a forerunner. What does this mean for us? It, It means that our hope and our anchor is nothing earthly. Nothing. Our hope and our anchor are positioned in the heavens where we can't even see. And it's not just that it's positioned, it's positioned there and it ties back and reaches to every single person who has said yes to Jesus and is trusting in Jesus. Be you having a good day or a bad day, be you having a great righteous day or a sin-filled day, be you having a day in life when everything's going perfect but, or everything's out of whack, In all of that, he is anchoring, he is sustaining, he is holding. And I love the way I think Paul has this in mind when he ends what we know as chapter 8 in Romans. And I want you to just listen to this for just a moment. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not only, or how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. more than that was raised and is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. And then listen to these great, great words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are all being killed all the day long, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else... In all creation, I want to repeat that one for just a moment. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why was Paul able to write that? Because he knew he was anchored. He knew he was anchored. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe Communion here. Communion here in just a moment. And I want you to think about this question as we get ready to do this. When you receive the elements and you're pondering and you're you're thinking through things where you're seated, I want you to ask yourself this question. How is Jesus Jesus currently keeping you anchored? How is he currently keeping you anchored? It it doesn't have to be just one answer. It can be a multitude of answers. Well, he's keeping me anchored because in my sinfulness, he's declaring me righteous. And moving me out of that and more to be like him. It can be in my storm that I'm in the midst of right now. He's got me anchored. Let me know that there's a brighter day coming. In my frailties, in my weakness, in in my doubts, in my fears. He's keeping me anchored. Because he is greater than all these things. Do you believe that? You truly believe that, not not just the yeah, I read it. And I believe it. you truly believe it. I say we have to ask ourselves that question because the reality of it is, oftentimes we may say one thing on Sunday morning, and the remainder of our week may paint a completely different picture. We sing beautiful songs. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and then by Wednesday we're going, man, if this would just go my way. If this would just get turned, if this would just reverse, then I'd really have hope. Well, it's either built on nothing less or it's built on nothing. It can't be both. How is Jesus anchoring you in your life today? Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt@gmail.com.